Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael Oslin, the Williams Griffiths Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Spying, Stealing, and Subordination, Dealing with the New China Rules, and it was recorded on April 24th. 2018. Uh, I know you've been sitting through through a few lectures, so uh, I'm going to try to jump things up a little bit and talk about the biggest problem that we face today. But I'm going to start, before I talk about that problem, I'm going to start with a story. The story goes back to Marco Polo. The story's been the same for eight centuries, whether it was Venetian merchants, Catholic missionaries, English traders, or American policymakers. The story was real simple. We can change China. That was the story. If we went to China, they'd start acting like us. They'd start wearing our clothes and eating our food, and more importantly, they would start thinking like us eventually. They'd worship our gods. They'd adopt our political systems. They'd adopt our values and our beliefs. And that drove every trader, merchant, uh, missionary, uh, diplomat, uh, political leader who, who tried, to go to, tried to go to China for centuries was this dream, not only that you would build a, a, a massive market for Western goods in China, but that they would ultimately become just like us. Well, I think after eight centuries, we can admit now that that story was a fairy tale. China's changed. Of course, every state has changed, every people, every culture has changed, but we haven't changed China. They may dress like us now, and they may eat our food, but they don't think like us. And they haven't adopted our gods, and they haven't adopted our system. And that's fine, actually. China gets to make those decisions. The problem is that we haven't accepted that that story is a fairy tale. And for far too long, we have ignored the real China and the reality of our relations with China in pursuit of this dream. So I want to talk to you today about a different story, the story of the China that we deal with today and the China we're going to be dealing with going into the future. Now, I work in Washington, D.C., by the way. I'm in our Washington, D.C. office. And if you uh, lived or worked in Washington, D.C. over the past 25 years, a quarter century, you would have spent, you were working on Asia and you were working on China like I do, you would have spent your career thinking about how close we can get the United States and China together. And you would have talked about things like a, a special partnership. Uh, some called it a G2. You know, there's the G7 and the G8 and the G20. Well, we're going to make it a G2 between Washington and Beijing. Uh, we would have talked about China as a responsible stakeholder. We would have talked about China eventually figuring out that liberal ideas and liberal ways of, of, of running your society and running your government is the best way, and that they would have figured out that that would have been in their own best interests. Today, if you work in Washington, D.C., the bloom is off the rose. You don't hear people talking like that anymore. People have finally accepted, I think, the idea that all of this hope that we had, that we would change China the same way Marco Polo thought he might change China, 
Lord Elgin in 1793 from Britain thought he might change China. I think Washington is finally getting to the point of accepting that it won't change China. But what it hasn't done is accepted that China wants to change us. That China's challenge to the United States is more than just one economy challenging another. That there is a fundamental geopolitical competition that is going on, which ironically is the very thing that American policymakers wanted to avoid. So if you go back to the 1970s, you go back to Henry Kissinger going to China and you go back to Zbigniew Brzezinski and President Nixon and Carter and so on and so forth, the whole idea was we were going to avoid that competition. We were going to bring China into the family of nations and the two of us in one way or another would increasingly shape the world going forward. Now, as I said, I think people in Washington have given that up. The problem is they don't know where to go from here. They haven't accepted what the real challenge is, I would argue in many ways the real danger is, because the thought of challenging the world's most populous country, the world's second largest economy, the world's largest military, quite frankly, terrifies Washington, D.C. This is a city that for 18 years, 17 years now, has been dealing with the war on terror, has exhausted itself and divided itself politically over the wars in the Middle East. And the very thought that we might now have to actually actively challenge China is something that no one in Washington really wants to accept. But in doing so, they've ignored three major challenges that I want to talk to you about today that China poses to us. Now, this isn't news. This is not secret stuff I'm telling you. This is all out in the open, but we haven't wrapped our minds around it and sort of put it together in a package and said, you know what, this is the reality of how we have to deal with China. I want to talk about spying a little bit, talk about stealing, and I want to talk about subordination. But in order to do that, I have to talk first, where do I point this thing? Here? There? Somewhere? Oh, I got it. I'm, pu I'm pushing the wrong button, as usual. This is why China's going to beat us technologically. I can't. I can't figure this out. I want to talk to you about Xi Jinping, the new emperor. In the infamous words of the Who, the rock band, meet the new boss. But this is not the same as the old boss. This face is going to be around for a long time to come. This is the most powerful leader in China since Mao Zedong. Just a few months ago, he was able to scrap the two-term limit on being president but that really didn't matter because he was going to keep control of the Communist Party and the Central Military Commission for decades going forward. This is a face you may see until 2030 and maybe beyond. This is the man who is ruling China. Now, one reason China has been so stable and, in fact, in many ways so productive over the past decades is because they've had a collective leadership. And they've had really anodyne leaders. No one sort of stepping out in front too much. So there was always a headman. That's not the China of Xi Jinping. This is the man calling the shots and driving China forward. Now, what I'm going to talk to you about did not start with Xi Jinping. But he's been in office since 2012. And everything I'm going to talk to you about, he has exacerbated. He has pushed forward. He has been more aggressive and more assertive than his, uh, than his predecessors. So when I talk about all these things, 
Remember that this is the guy who's making these decisions, who has decided that it is in China's better interests to challenge the United States and hope we, we sort of ignore it or shrink from the challenge, as opposed to doing the thing that we've been hoping for for 40 years, 50 years, which is to be a productive, cooperative partner in the international system. Um, I grew up during the Cold War, as many of you did. Um, and one thing about the Cold War, and I went to school in Washington, D.C., so spies and spying were a big thing. And you remember, you know, you remember back in the Cold War, you think about James Bond, and you think about the Cambridge Five, and you think about all the spy novels that we read. Spying, you know, it was, it was fun, it was interesting, it was titillating, but it was actually really important. And I would argue that one of the most important parts of spying during the Cold War was the, um, the social, the cultural uh, role that it played in our understanding of our challenge with the Soviet Union, competition with the Soviet Union. Now, let's not be surprised that there's gambling going on in the casino today, right? China's spying on us, and we're spying on China. But the degree to which China is pervasively infiltrating the United States, infiltrating our security services and the government, infiltrating our businesses, infiltrating our campuses, I'll talk about that in a second, is to a degree that, that even the Russians couldn't have managed. In fact, some experts call this the golden age of Chinese spying. They think there may be as many as 25,000 Chinese spies of one sort or another working in the United States. Now, some of them are formal spies, right? They get their money from the Ministry of State Security. Others are folks who just come up and talk to you and me and say, what are you working on? And then they send that information back. But it is pervasive and it is everywhere. And like I said, let's not be shocked at that. Because the extent we can, we're doing the same thing in China. But we have to understand the degree to which China is trying to penetrate our society and successfully doing so. These are just three spies. These are just three spies that, have, that were caught, um, one of them stretching back decades. That's Katrina Leung. She was arrested in 2003. She was the classic honey trap. A woman set out to ensnare men in the U.S. government and get whatever secret she could. She did it for about 20 years and then figured out a plea deal and went back to China. So she's not in a U.S. jail. Uh, down at the bottom there is Kevin Mallory, who was a security officer for the State Department, also worked for the CIA, uh, and was some, some sort of bumbling Inspector Clouseau-type spy trying to bring things on, on little thumb drives, couldn't figure out how to use them, recording devices, and actually revealed himself to the FBI. And then there's Jerry Lee, who was just arrested earlier this year, former CIA agent, far as we can tell, turned by the Chinese, who gave the Chinese information about our spying networks that decimated them. You may have seen some of those stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times earlier this year. Why don't we care about Chinese spying? I don't, I don't have an answer, by the way. I'm just throwing out the question. We cared about Kim Philby, right? We cared about Aldrich Ames. These were traitors to the United States or Great Britain, traitors to Western democracy. We don't really pay attention to these folks. The question is, how many of them are out there? Is there a Yale Five out there somewhere? Kids who went to school together and now have risen up in the government. I used to teach at Yale. 
Maybe they're out there and they're all, they're all running each other as, as agents for China. We have to accept that this is a major challenge to the United States, that our secrets are not safe, that the Chinese took advantage of our belief that that type of stuff is it's going on, but it's not like it was in the Cold War and it's not important. And we keep finding more and more and more folks. These are just three I put up. More and more and more folks who are betraying their country. And yet, where's the outrage? Where's the concern? Where's the recognition that this is a real form of warfare against our country? Another part of the spies, and by the way, you can't really, there's not too many slides I could put up about spies. You know, they're, they're, in, the, they're in the shadows. I couldn't show you what they've been stealing, but I did want to put up some of those faces. But I can talk a little bit more about how they spy on the open society, right? That's our great strength, an open society. Well, the director of the FBI just testified before Congress that Chinese operatives are infiltrating our universities, our research institutes, all of the, um, uh, Roger Scruton, so Roger talked about our societies. They are penetrating our societies, the small societies, within our open society. One of the institutions that's now coming under scrutiny is the Confucius Institutes. Now, I haven't looked at all of them. There's about 500 worldwide. There's about 100, I think, in the United States. Um, but some universities are finally saying no to the Confucius Institutes because the Chinese themselves have said that these institutes are part of a foreign policy program for China. They are part of an arm to spread propaganda about China. And I can't tell you in all honesty, if every institute does that. You'd have to look at how each one is run. But the FBI now believes it's serious enough that it is happening on our campuses all over the country that we have to pay attention, not just to the Confucius Institutes, but to Chinese researchers who come here and get into our advanced laboratories, our advanced research institutes, and bring that material back home. So that in essence, we are subsidizing Chinese economic technological development. We don't want to close our society. We don't want to close these research institutes. We believe that's the best way for knowledge to be developed. It, it is. There's no question about it. But what are the costs? We haven't thought about those costs from an adversary that is actively taking advantage of our openness and our willingness to basically let everybody in. But there's some people that are starting to talk about it, the director of the FBI. There's been a few universities I mentioned that have said no to these Confucius Institutes, but they're on campuses, and that's just one element of Chinese penetration of the open society. Let me talk about stealing, right? And these things sort of, they, they, they flow together. It's not that I can talk, here's spying, here's stealing, here's subordination. They all work together because they are part of a of a plan. I don't know if you call it a grand plan, but it's a plan of what China does. And this may be one of the best known elements of what China's doing and something we did not want to admit for a long time, which is quite simple. China is stealing us blind. And they have been doing so for decades. Again, maybe it's because of our open society. Maybe it's because we just wanted to get them to trust us so we could develop this great relationship together. But now we know the facts are out there. They are incontrovertible that China is stealing us blind. This is just a, uh, a slide uh, from the, um, the National Security Agency. 
of cyber attacks on the U.S. Uh, over the past five years. This slide's about two, three years old or so. Um, penetrating businesses, penetrating local governments, penetrating um, uh, obviously the federal government, penetrating research institutes, anything you can imagine. We built, and I don't understand it, we built an open architecture when we built the internet, when we digitized and networked our society, again, because our philosophical belief is that openness is the best way to ensure economic growth, freedom of expression, protection of individual rights, and all of that is correct. What we did not think about were those who welcomed that because it allowed them to take advantage of it. And this is what's been happening in our country. And it's not happening, by the way, with little geeky 17-year-old Chinese kids sitting in their parents' basements in their pajamas, though there may be some of that. It is sponsored by the Chinese government. This is a picture of one of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army units, that is trained for cyber attacks on the United States and the rest of the world, by the way. It's not just us. It's all of our allies, everyone, everyone, all of our friends, by the way. And you can see the number of attacks on the United States. There was a uh, fantastic, uh, if you read the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the caption there, China cyber attack, U.S. firm Mandiant, that's the third word there. Mandiant came out with a major report about three years ago that finally traced and tracked this PLA-sponsored hacking. And don't, the North Koreans do it and the Russians do it. I'm, I'm not denying all that. But the Chinese have systematically pursued at the official levels the penetration of our society using elements of the army to get into our companies and our businesses. They have stolen petabytes of information. We don't actually know how much they've stolen. And these aren't little phishing. If you read that Mandiant report, it's not a little phishing operation. You know, they dip in and they dip out. They embed themselves in our companies and stay for months or years, hoovering up all the information that they can. And they've also done it, by the way, in almost every single weapons system being developed and built by the United States government. The DOD, Department of Defense, came out with a report a few years ago that said essentially every single weapons system was penetrated by the Chinese and information and secrets taken away, which means that you, the American taxpayer have subsidized the modernization of the Chinese military. And I'm going to show you a slide of some of those Chinese military weapons, and you'll see how shockingly they look like Americans, American weapons. Well, they are, because they just stole the blueprints. And it's being done at an official level. But it's not just the military. It's not just our business. It is American individuals. This is the thing. I thought this would be the tipping point, quite frankly, when this broke about, what was that, three years ago now. Chinese hackers, directed by the state, penetrated the Office of Personnel Management of the United States government. They stole the personal information of at least 22 million Americans who had security clearances or other information on record with the government. So it, they weren't just saying, look, we're going to spy against the CIA or we're going to steal from IBM. They went in and they got my information. How do I know that? Because I got a letter from OPM. It said, your information may have been compromised. Thanks. And you get one year free of identity theft protection. 
Well, you guys are a little late on that, aren't you? Not only that, my wife got a letter. She doesn't work for the government. She doesn't have a security clearance, but she's married to me. And since I had that, and her information was in my file, she got the letter too. 22 million Americans minimum. That number just continues to increase the more they look at it. This is aggression on a scale never seen before between developed countries. We didn't do this to the British. The Russians certainly, well, you know, the Russians couldn't penetrate. Of course, we didn't have these types of systems back then. And for us, we're not going to steal 22 million Chinese information. What would that be useful for? I can get anything out of it. But they took all of our information. They probably have, they definitely have some of your information. You may have received an OPM letter. More frighteningly, you may not have received an OPM letter. And your information has still been compromised. That's, the, that's just the message I'm trying to send, is how broad-based this is. The stealing is not a sideshow. It's not an afterthought. It is a fundamental element of Chinese statecraft in the world today. It is to say, we do not respect any of your rules. We do not respect any of your secrets. We do not respect whether you are an individual or you are a business or are the US government. We are going to take everything we can because you let us. Because you've just kept your system open and unprotected. And so they're acting in their own interests, what they think are their own interests. But we, on the other hand, are sitting there saying, well, but we've got this great strategic relationship with you. And President Obama, meets new, then new President Xi, and they roll up their shirt sleeves at the Sunnyland Summit, and Xi promises, we will stop spying on you. We will stop taking this information. And then he goes to the Rose Garden, and he says, we're going to stop taking this information. And then they do a study in the U.S. government. They say, you know what? They've doubled what they're doing. And what's the response from the U.S.? Zero. We've done nothing. And the Chinese have learned from our doing nothing over decades. So they've been spying on us. They've been stealing from us. Let me finish up uh, before we get to questions. I just want to make sure I, I stay on time. Let me talk a little bit about subordination. I know that's a strong word. You know, China wants to subordinate the world. And I resisted that, by the way, for a real long time because I, I thought it was cheap and easy. I thought it was too easy in Washington, D.C. to go on Fox News and say China's trying to take over the world. I, I don't think that's a particularly sophisticated way to look at it. On the other hand, if you stop and you start toting up all the different things that China's trying to do, they are clearly trying to subordinate different countries around the world and subordinate different systems and ways that we have acted to try to create an international community, an open international community, an international community that tries to follow certain laws and rules, not always and, and, and often more in the, uh, the absence than the observance, but nonetheless. We've tried our best. And China, which has benefited more than any other country from that international system of open trade, of international law, of copyright protection for its own goods and services, which has benefited to make it the economic powerhouse that it is, is nonetheless doing everything it can to undermine that system. One of the ways it's doing it is by not solving problems and, in fact, exacerbating problems. Don't have to show you what this picture is. It was just last month, right? March. Kim Jong-un went to meet Xi Jinping, finally. China has been the greatest supporter of North Korea, economically, 
politically, technologically. We think now they may be giving them engines for the, for the ICBMs that can now hit Palo Alto and Washington, D.C., either giving it or turning a blind eye as those engine parts are being sent over to North Korea. We know that China turned a blind eye to North Korea proliferating certain elements of weapons of mass destruction and banned materials over its land and air routes because we were trying to shut it down at sea. We know that there are millions and millions of dollars of trade cross-border between North Korea and China that China has done nothing to clamp down on. That is a direct lifeline for this regime. This is just one example. I could go on and on and on. This is just one example of how China is undermining international stability by making sure that Kim Jong-un can stay in power. And I'd love to talk to you about North Korea, by the way, and I'll, I'll say just two things about Kim Jong-un. Number one, don't underestimate him uh, when President Trump goes to meet him. And number two, he is potentially the most successful national leader on the globe today. He's stabilized his economy, he's gotten rid of political opposition, and he's got his nukes and his missiles. He has achieved everything he set out to achieve. And if he was running for re-election, it'd be a perfect re-election campaign. I told you what I'm gonna do, I did it, now re-elect me. So don't ever underestimate Kim Jong-un, but part of the reason he could do all this is because of China. So undermining pol uh, international political order and stability by supporting bad actors. One thing we talk about a lot in Washington, D.C., is how China is trying to reshape security in Asia. And what does that really mean? Does it mean it wants to take over Asia? I think what it means is that China wants, unquestionably, to be the dominant power in Asia. It has what's called the first and second island chains. You can see them up here, which really are essentially just strategic lines on the map for areas that China wants to control. The East China Sea, the South China Sea, Sea of Japan on that inner first island chain, which of course encompasses our ally Japan, and then all the way out to Guam on that second island chain, all the way out to the Philippine Sea to have freedom of strategic action. Now that seems like it's biting off a lot more than it can chew. So how's it doing it? It's doing it, again, because you've been subsidizing the buildup of the Chinese military. That top shot up there, that was just taken a few weeks ago. That was the largest Chinese naval exercise. That's a fleet, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a flotilla. That's a fleet of ships transiting through the Taiwan Straits in order to intimidate Taiwan. And in the middle there, I think they said there's a pointer. I have a pointer? I have a pointer somewhere. I don't, I don't know how to use it. Maybe that's it. There it is. That's an aircraft carrier, China's new aircraft carrier. Now, I, I have a lot of faith in the U.S. Navy that they look at that and they say, bring it on. That the U.S. Navy wants this because they'll sink it in the first five minutes. But no one else in Asia can sink it in the first five minutes. And so China is able to intimidate Taiwan and intimidate the Philippines and intimidate Vietnam, maybe even intimidate Japan because of this fleet. That middle thing, you might be mistaken or forgiven for being mistaken that that's a U.S. F-22, our most advanced fighter. It's not. It's the Chinese stolen version of the F-22 that's coming online. We paid for it. They got it. And at the bottom there, by the way, those are Chinese missiles, which they also, by the way, stole from us back in the 1980s, 1990s. Big report during the Clinton era, you may remember. This is how China is trying to reshape security in Asia. It has an advanced military 
and a military that is increasingly able to not only project power outwards, but to fulfill the goals of Chinese national security. It couldn't do that in the 1980s. It couldn't really do that in the 1990s. It can do it today. And there is no nation in Asia, let alone, to be honest, collective group of nations in Asia that can really oppose China from doing this. It's focused in particular on the seas of Asia, which we think of, we call it the East China Sea and the South China Sea. It's one big ocean. It's one big integrated space. And in particular, am I doing this right? Yeah. We have the Spratly Islands, uh, Scarborough Shoal. These are the Paracel Islands. China has been building bases out of the water. This is a picture of Fiery Cross Reef. Now, this was the reef a few years ago, a reef. You'd go scuba dive there. Then China started land filling it in, dredging up the ocean bottom and actually making an island. And this is what it looks like today. Missile shelters, a 9,000 foot runway which can take any military plane in the world, radar facilities, storage facilities, portage facilities and the like. And this is just one of their islands in the South China Sea. And they claim this as sovereign territory. They put schools on these islands. They put post offices on these islands. They say, this is China. Don't think this isn't China. Don't think we're not going to defend this. But what it allows them to do, let me go back for one second, is to have sea and air control over the South China Sea. Now, the South China Sea is so crucial because here's the Indian Ocean. You'll see that in a, in a slide in a second. 70% of global trade comes through the Malacca Strait or the Sunda Strait down here through the South China Sea up into the East China Sea where you've got China, South Korea, and Japan, three of the world's most important economies. And China wants to control those waterways. And I've been a real skeptic on that. I was like, so what? So fine, control the waterway. What do we care? When they control the waterway, they control how other nations act. They control the way that nations decide to stand up to and oppose Chinese claims on islands such as the Spratleys and the Paracels. Just the ability to do so changes the strategic calculations of smaller and weaker countries. But because we have turned a blind eye for decades, China has now built these islands, it has now militarized the South China Sea, and it's stolen the technology that's allowing it to do it. Uh, let me finish up with just one last slide and then we'll get to questions because I think we're right at time. One other way that China is trying to subordinate, I think if I can use the term this way, is in what's called the One Belt, One Road or the Belt and Road Initiative or the New Silk Road. As a historian, I like New Silk Road, but for some reason people are calling it the Belt and the Road. And this is an extraordinarily ambitious Chinese plan to essentially unite and link all of Eurasia together. In fact, not just Eurasia but Europe all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and even over to Latin America, but primarily this region up here, in trade and infrastructure and ultimately political relations and even security ties. Now, the United States has helped in this because we have not pursued the types of free trade agreements that a lot of nations in the region were looking for. But China has pledged $1 trillion of infrastructure development. Now, let's wait and see if they actually pony up the money. But they want to create these links that are, as you can see here, land-based and sea-based.
But the goal is not just economic, the goal is political. The goal is to create a new community centered around China. One in which China sets rules for intellectual property, sets rules for trade, but I think more importantly, sets rules for politics, for political, settling political disputes, pursuing common political aims, and security and the like. This is a challenge. It's not a challenge because China's gonna actually invest a trillion dollars. It's a challenge because it has stated this openly, and there are no real alternatives right now to what China does in terms of what other states can do. So I'm gonna stop there, but I'll leave you with two thoughts, which is that not all is lost. Don't go away and look for the bar, yet. Not all is lost, okay? First, China has enormous problems, and I'm happy to talk about those in question and answer. It's got debt problems, it has economic problems, it has uh, labor force problems, it has political legitimacy problems, there's tons of problems that China faces that is going to make going forward for Xi Jinping and the Communist Party harder than it's been for the past 30 years. That's number one. Number two, we still have a lot of allies in the region. We have formal allies like Japan, South Korea, Australia. We have countries that like to work with us like Singapore. India is always a player in this. We have a lot of potential allies and actual allies that we can call on and that are worried about China. But what they've also seen, to go back to my story in the beginning, is that we bought into the myth, we bought into the fairy tale, and for 30, 40 years now, we've done nothing to alter and shape and shift China's own behavior so that it did become the more cooperative, more productive member of the international society as opposed to one that thinks it's okay to spy, to steal, and to subordinate. So why don't we get to your questions? Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.